This is Docs in the Box podcast. A podcast about medicine, muscles, and more through the eyes of two physiatrists. I'm Dr. Amy West. And I'm Dr. Matthew Cowling. Docs in the Box, episode seven. Already. We have Dr. Nathan Jenkins. No sleeves podcast, by the way, but he wore sleeves. PhD, exercise physiologist, professor at the University of Georgia. Um, Nathan studies the metabolic adaptations of various forms of exercise, um, and he also is a nutrition coach. So a lot of good stuff to talk about today. I guess we'll just start out by letting you, um, you know, tell the audience, how did you get involved in, in studying this stuff? Um, yeah, uh, first of all, thanks guys for having me. I've, I, th- I think I've listened to all your episodes so far. Um, so I'm, I'm honored to be, um, uh, you know, uh, in the list of your illustrious uh, guests that you're accumulating for this podcast. I think you guys are doing an awesome job. And, um, you know, there's a, there's, uh, you, you guys are a great voice for, for your intended audience. So um, I appreciate the chance to come on. Um, yeah. So my, how did I get in, into, how, how did I get to where I am or whatever? Um, I have been studying uh, exercise science in some way, shape or form for about coming up on 20 years now, if I go back to my undergrad, um, I uh, have always been interested in uh, like human health, the human body. Um, I'll give you, try to give you the, the short version of this. Um, originally for my very, very first uh, you know, foray into research, I was interested in um, exercise performance. This is back in like the mid 2000s. I did a, my master's project was in uh, like the effects of acute caffeine consumption on uh, cycling performance. I was really into like uh, bike racing at the time. And my master's advisor had it, we kind of shared that interest. So I got into that. But then for PhD and postdoc, I wanted to kind of pivot to something that was a little bit more um, health oriented and clinical oriented. So I got into exercise for the prevention and treatment of cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular disease risk factors. Um, in my postdoc, I uh, started focusing a bit more on uh, type 2 diabetes, the sort of the underlying, uh, not, and it wasn't always necessarily the effects of exercise on diabetes. I got into some of the basic science of diabetes uh, in, in those studies. Um, and then fast forward to my uh, first appointment or my, my first and now only appointment that I've had as a faculty member. Um, I, uh, my, my, my research interest is in, as you, as you summarized really well, Matt, um, the, the effects of acute and chronic exercise on um, metabolic health and cardio, cardiovascular health. Um, we look at both risk factors and um, that you would measure in the clinic, but also some sort of novel lab-based measures of um, metabolic function, mitochondrial function, vascular health, um, at both, and we try to cut across multiple uh, layers of data with that. Um, anything from uh, the cellular molecular level, which is what um, a lot of my research historically has been in, but more and more as I get kind of maybe maybe it's age, maybe it's whatever, but uh, just kind of as my ideas evolve, I'm I'm interested more and more in the uh, kind of whole body uh, clinically relevant, trying to push more and more towards clinically relevant um, research, uh, exper- you know, ex- experimental designs um, as opposed to kind of getting into the real nitty gritty cellular stuff. So um, that's sort of the academic side of, uh, of what I kind of do, you know, my nine to five, if you will. And then I also, as you mentioned, um, sort of moonlight as a nutrition coach, um, 
for a company called Renaissance Periodization or RP Strength, as a lot of people know them. Um, and I also have a, a relationship with CrossFit Inc. I've done a, a fair amount of consulting work uh, for the training department specifically uh, of, with CrossFit Inc. And um, have had a lot of fun interacting um, with the CrossFit Health uh, crew, which is how I uh, cross paths cross path with you guys. Um, in addition to hanging out at the games where we, all, we really all should be right now, right? Um, so uh, anyway, that's, that's kind of a, maybe that's too long, but that's my background and, and, and um, kind of a little synopsis of who I am and uh, where I'm coming from. Nice. So I think one of, one of the things that I think we, we've, we've spoken about in the past is, um, well, are the, the guidelines, what medical guidelines exist currently uh, as far as exercise prescription is concerned. And I've found just in personal experience that those guidelines are somewhat um, not completely uh, accurate. Mm -hmm. um, but also there's a scientific basis for why those guidelines may not be accurate or mm -hmm. what doctors should be recommending to their patients. So um, could you talk a little bit about that and sort of sure. the current guidelines as they exist, but how... Maybe what would be a better, what would be an alternative to that? Yeah, Amy, this is my favorite subject in the entire world, so I'm glad it's your first question. Um, so, I, uh, my, my understanding of, uh, let's just talk about like what what is exercise from a metabolic standpoint first, and um, I'm try, I can try to keep this short and, and think through this a little bit, but um, essentially you've got these, these three uh, metabolic pathways that are involved in um, uh, how our muscles produce work and what really when we talk about what exercise is from a physiological standpoint, this is one of the sort of the underpinnings of it is you've got the oxidative pathway, which is like the long, slow distance. Um, you've got the glycolytic pathway, which is short sprinty type efforts. And you've got the phosphagen or phosphocreatine pathway, which is really, really short, high power efforts, like a maximal lift. Um, the guidelines, if you read the text of them, which is, I'm going to paraphrase it, but um, the, the general recommendations are to do 30 to 60 minutes of aerobic type exercise uh, per day, three to five days a week. Um, that's kind of the core basis uh, of the recommendations, which, so that's the arrow we check the, we're looking at, if we look at a checklist, we're checking the, that's for sure we're checking the aerobic or oxidative pathway box there. And then the other kind of subtext of the guidelines, the secondary recommendation is to do uh, resistance type training. Um, uh, two to three days or at least two day, on at least two days per week. Um, and that should hit most muscle groups, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so that's the, um, the foster creatine or phosphogen pathway. Um, and, and so, so that's two of the three, but that's really where the guidelines stop. And so my, um, the thing that, I, that I've been really wondering about for the last, this goes back at least five years for my research, probably more than that, but, uh, formally for when I started actually designing studies around this problem, it's go, it goes back about five years for me, is really trying to understand um, what's going on with that. Why is it that way? And I, 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 we can talk all about that, but the short answer is I don't know why it is. Um, I have some ideas, but I don't really know why. Uh, but, but circling back to your question, the issue, the beef that I have, and, and why, and why we, I think it's, it's defensible to say that the guidelines are um, – inaccurate but a better word may be incomplete is that that glycolytic pathway that middle ground 
time domain when we talk about exercise uh, protocols. So in, the, in that roughly, I'm gonna throw out some times here, but roughly 30 to 60 seconds on out to about three to, to five minutes of hard effort would be an exercise protocol that would, we would say has a strong glycolytic signature. Um, that is completely missing from the guidelines. Completely not not even not even uh, touched upon. Um, in the newest version of the uh, physical activity guidelines for for Americans, um, there is some language about um, how I, I have to look at the exact text. But uh, the, the high intensity interval training is not formally part of the guidelines. But there's an acknowledgement that there's some health benefits to interval training, uh, which is really how we see the glycolytic pathway addressed in practice. But uh, the, yeah, the research, or sorry, the, the funny thing is the research kind of is there, which we can also talk about. But as far as like what policymakers are using, the, 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 the position stands and the authoritative statements from the, um, like the federal government uh, and um, leading organizations like the ACSM, they're not really touching uh, the glycolytic pathway formally, right? So that's, um, again, I promise my answers will start getting shorter as we go along, but um, that's kind of my uh, uh, working sort of thesis is is that, wow, we really, as a field, so, and I, I'm saying we, because I, I actually am part of that group. I'm an exercise scientist in the, in the academic setting. Um, my field is presenting these messages that I fundamentally have um, an issue with, which is the, the incompleteness. So we're touching on two of the three main metabolic pathways but if, if we think about from like a whole human physiological perspective uh, just raise the question shouldn't we be kind of addressing all three shouldn't we be a little bit more comprehensive in how we um, advise people to exercise and advise folks like yourselves um, physicians who have patients under their under their care to uh, to treat them right so so who wrote these guidelines uh, there's a, <laughs> there is a, uh, there's a writing group uh, for the, so for example, well, there's different guidelines. So let's talk about specifically the main ones, which is the uh, physical, um, the United States Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans, the PAG. Mm -hmm. And those have been written now, the, the original version was written in 2008, and they were most recently updated in 2018. And there's a writing group uh, for those, and then the writing groups have uh, different sort of consultants that they that they pull in and essentially it's it's people like myself but just much more senior in the field than i am um usually it's it's uh a, like i said very very senior uh, very very well established well-known um, experts in the field of exercise physiology or, or even brought in that exercise science um you know established experts within uh, their respective areas of uh, of expertise that are in the domains that the, that, that the guidelines touch on. So for example, if there's a section, there is a section on exercise and mental health. And so the leading scholars on exercise and mental health um, were appointed to, to, uh, to write or tasked with writing that those sections. And then the, the, the big documents like 600 some pages is, a, is just a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an assemblage of all of that smashed it together. And there it is. Um, there's, I want to say ten or twelve different sections. I have it all. I have it all in the talk that I 
gave it. Yeah. So there, there's a, my understanding at least is there's a group of people that have been creating these guidelines and that have been consistently uh, updating them or whenever they need updating. And that group has remained relatively the same. Oh yeah. Uh, that group has really not changed in composition too much. Um, I'd have to look It's the, the, the list is public. And um, if when I look at it, it's like, it really is all the big names in my field. Um, and some of them, I personally, I, let me just go on record. Like I have, I have issues with the, the, the methodology of how those guidelines are generated and, and, and also the, the scientific interpretations of, of the messages that come out of those guidelines, like the practical application for how a physician, like, like someone like yourselves would use them. I, I definitely respect the, the body of work that these individuals have done. And some of these individuals, like I know personally, I've authored papers with a couple of them um and, and on other topics um but man yeah so so the but the the composition of the it seems like that the the basically the way that you get invited to to author the the guidelines is that you've written some studies that are included that meet the inclusion criteria um and it's kind of like um how, how eminent of a scholar are you based on how many papers you published and you know how well known are you in in the space so yeah i mean so the guidelines that i'm well, more familiar with are from the acsm and the american college of sports medicine so i myself am a card carrying member of the acsm so oh, really um well at least maybe until may have expired at this point but you know up yeah. to another conference last year so i'm in, involved within the organization a lot of my mentors have been involved and actually some of the people i train with helped write the exercises medicine campaign or actually sure. actively involved yeah. in that. so um i think like yourself, I, I find myself a little bit torn between, you know, obviously like respecting the work yeah. and the intentions for the most part of the people involved in writing these guidelines, all well-intentioned people sure. um, who are encouraging ex people to exercise, which again, we all agree on, but yeah. then the actual um, execution of that and the things that are being recommended, um, this idea of if you just walk for 30 minutes a day, you're meeting that requirement and therefore you are fit. <laughs> right. It's flawed greatly. Yeah. The fact that these consensus guidelines are essentially being sort of formulated by the same group of people who mm -hmm. sort of toss around the same ideas year after year is, yeah. is, can be frustrating. Yeah. Um, but talking about consensus guidelines, so that was sort of the, how these how these guidelines come together essentially yeah. a group of well-known uh, well-researched people come together and form a consensus statement ba based on their opinions and what they have researched um, mm -hmm. so can you share your ideas on on consensus guidelines and also you know if if that's not the way to do it then what is the way to form well this? yeah it's um the key word that you're that you're mentioning amy is is that is consensus and that's my, um, that's really where I, I've, I think that's the linchpin of, the, of what I view as the flaw in the process is that it's, if you think about consensus, I mean, there's some scenarios where consensus is, is um, a good thing to use to guide um, recommendations. But in the, in, in the exercise space, I'm not convinced that it's the best way. Um, so what, is, what, they, what they use as their criteria for um, should, should a, a piece of evidence be included in the guidelines or not, it's, it's like, well, how many studies are there available on it, right? And so it's like, we, so that encourages this behavior of uh, this, uh, this uh, behavior of the field um, 
where people kind of just keep doing the same studies over and over and over. Right. So if you look at the extra, the, so that, that the, the core guideline, that 30 minutes, 30 to 60 minutes a day, three to five days a week uh, of aerobic, of moderate intensity, aerobic type activity. Um, and it should be continuous. That, the reason for that being the core statement is because there's like, I mean, probably literally thousands of studies to support the benefits of that. But, and so that, it, so it's pretty easy when people are sitting around in, a, in like a board meeting saying, hey, what can, what can we kind of hang our hat on as something that's like solid? Um, that, then you use something like that. There's just like, wow, it's, it's a numbers thing. It's like quantity. Um, there, there's so much evidence here that, uh, yeah, we can, we can say that as our key guideline. Well, <clears throat> to me, science is about discovery. And it's about, um, uh, it's not about finding uh, the, the thing that we can all necessarily agree on. It's actually about looking at existing uh, assumptions and sort of challenging them. And it, it, we don't really advance by keep the, 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 the knowledge base by repeating the same experiments or the same, in the same clinical, big clinical trials over and over and over again. We just kind of keep getting the same answer. That, and and we, we call that science. And I, I'm not convinced of that science. Science is, like I said, discovering new things and um, testing new hypotheses and comparing the existing treatment or, or protocol to something that's novel. And and objectively looking at the data and saying, hey, is this, this the established protocol, the, you know, the, the existing dogma, is it truly the best thing? Or is it just the thing that we've looked at the most? And um, more and more, I'm, in, I'm increasingly convinced that uh, the guidelines are based on um, the data that we've looked at the most. And we're kind of in this uh, sort, of, sort of on autopilot with those, with those guidelines saying, yeah, the, you know, the, the core is still aerobic exercise. When... Um, and just to get into the specifics of this, and I, and I touched on this in that um, talk I gave at the DDC uh, at CrossFit HQ back in May of last year, uh, there's actually a growing body of evidence going back to the mid-2000s, I want to say, if not, probably about the mid-2000s, for sure, the uh, first part of the last decade, um, showing that high-intensity interval training is at least as effective and in some cases more effective in producing cardiometabolic health adaptations uh, in the general population and also even in clinical populations like heart failure mm -hmm. um, uh, compared to the, the, the standard approach, which is, again, that 30 to 60 minutes a day of aerobic activity. So, um, the, so the, the, the frustration that I have is that the consensus view is not changing only because it's like, well, we just need more studies. We need more studies. We need more studies. Well, I agree. I don't disagree with that. And, and, and I see that. Like, I, I mean, I'm trained in that way. I get it. But what about that? That really well done, maybe high impact, relatively low end. It's a novel study. Um, you got 10 to 20 patients per group. It's not, you know, it's not thousands of patients, but 10, to 20 patients per group producing really convincing data that their, their ejection fraction and is going from heart failure diagnosis to no longer heart failure diagnosis with an interval training protocol. How does that, does that not challenge the guidelines? And does that not like maybe say, hey, we should, we should, re we should evaluate this a little bit more. Um, and the, the reaction a lot of times when you, when you propose these ideas, it's like, well, you're, you're just a, you're, you're, a, you're a quack, you're a loony, you're out there, you know? Um, so anyway, uh, 
I forget what the original question was now. Was it uh, how, how well, are the thoughts about consensus? And then, you know, what, what yeah. would you recommend in lieu of that? Because I yeah. think that, so then the question is, okay, well, if consensus isn't the way to go, well, that's the best thing we have. So then what do we do in the meantime? <laughs> um, which I can see people kind of asking. Yeah. So the, uh, the consensus is, it's tough for, um, physicians. I know that's your audience. So, um, it's tough for physicians because you, you have to make clinical judgments based on you know, using the evidence base, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the, there's like the, the three legs of evidence-based medicine, right? And one is, okay, what's the evidence base? But then another one though is, um, you know, your, your own experience, clinical experience, and also uh, individual, the, and then the other one's patient preference, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, um, you can use your judgment to say, hey, maybe this person so there's a lot of there's a lot of benefits to alternative forms of exercise, uh, besides the the guidelines based protocols of like go on a 30 minute walk, or God forbid get on a, get on an elliptical an elliptical machine for 45 minutes in um, you know the standard Globo gym or whatever. Which now there's not many of those uh, open right now, but uh, you know that's like the most for me that's the most boring god awful thing. I'd rather chew my arm off than sit on an elliptical machine for 45 minutes. Uh, but that's what our guidelines would advocate. Well, you, you know that the patient's not going to stick to that anyway, or, you're, or whoever it is that you're advising. Um, may, and that takes a long time. It's, it's boring. It's time consuming. Hey, how about this? How about you go out for, um, just give me 10 minutes. And in those 10 minutes, I'm going to have you work for five. Do a, a minute of go as, as far as you can in, in a run or a jog or whatever it is that's based on your ability. Go as far as you can in that minute. And then rest for another minute and then see if that next minute can you get to um, the same distance that you did that first minute and so on to keep doing that for 10, for, for 10, 10 minutes is all you need, and, but make it high quality. Um, and essentially what, what, uh, what I would say is uh, to answer your question is that, that I just, I'm just coming up with that as an example, but the idea is I don't think that the, we should feel bound to the consensus statements, um, especially when our, our real world experiments and in your clinical judgment, you see that it's not, it's not working. But I mean, I would, I would turn it back to you guys. How many, how, how many patients under your care or maybe under your colleagues care if they're uh, in, in, in your respective disciplines, you may or may not be um, doing it this way, but how many patients would you expect actually follow the, the, the standard prescription, uh, you know, a guidelines based protocol? Like what's the percentage? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? Like, it's not good, right? It's very, very low. Um, whereas we know we're, we're all, the other thing we're seeing from, uh, from, and this is starting to emerge in the evidence base, um, but certainly anecdotally, the, and it's somewhat counterintuitive to people in my field, is that these high intensity protocols where people actually work really, really, really hard, people adhere to them better. They actually report greater levels of enjoyment and, um, you know, feelings of accomplishment and, uh, and this 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 uh, is consistent with that, that anecdotal evidence of like a, you know like a CrossFit workout is like God that was the worst thing I've ever done in my life, uh, but I'll see you tomorrow morning at six thirty right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean that's so it, I've had that experience. And I've talked about this before, but I, I've been training these uh, since the gym's closed. Uh-huh. I've been training basically my staff after work. Yeah, uh, I heard you talk about that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and they like so some of them were just people who ran every morning for an hour or would go to a globo gym and like sit on machines for an hour a day. 
and they work out. I give them like most 20 minutes at the, at the end of the day and they get their asses kicked for 20 minutes. And I go, you see how much time you're wasting sitting on machines every morning. You could just be doing this instead. And then they have all come back, you know, since March, they've all consistently been showing up since then. And you know, now we're in August and I go, you see (laughs) this. So like taking stuff like that and being able to sort of extrapolate it to the community at large is, you know, And the other really, are you guys doing that all together as like a group? Yeah, there's like, um, at times it can be up to eight, nine of us, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's also a huge piece, right? Like Social part. And mm-hmm. that to me, that is the other, that may be just as important as what's, if we look at the, the, the discussion about the guidelines and, and um, standard, uh, whether it's the PAG or the ACSM, the ADA, American Diabetes Association, the American Heart Association, they all, they all have guidelines. They all kind of basically say the same stuff. And what's really informative, has been very informative for me is to look at them from the standpoint of not, not so much critiquing what is there. And I actually, when I first started to, to, to and that's kind of fun for, for me as a scientist, like it's a fun kind of provocative way to, to do research is like, just like critique the heck out of something that is there. Um, and certainly there are holes to be poked in what is there, but actually what's even better is to look at what's not there. Um, what's more educational is to look at what's, what's missing uh, from that. And so the glycolytic pathway, like that's my angle as a, as a physiologist is what I see, but also from a psychological sort of mental health and, and uh, there's this whole field of like exercise adherence. Um, the, the group aspect is completely absent from any guidelines document that I've ever seen. But anecdotally, and um, from, from like the fitness industry side, right, the, which is another, another form of science, which is um, the, the, the iterative approach. It's like, let's try stuff that, that, that we think is a good idea and if the market rewards it, we'll uh, keep it. Well, that approach in the industry has really, really shown us the impact of the group exercise setting, right? Um, whether, and that's CrossFit and that's all it's, all the boutique fitness, there's different flavors of that, uh, Orange Theory, uh, you know, uh, blah, 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 Berries Fitness, whatever it is, uh, there's millions of them and they're all successful. <laughs> um, th- so, uh, I think that's a that's a really really um, important lesson is that, and I think that it, it certainly is being manifest in your in your in your group too. So not just the big mainstream fitness things, but the um, little stories like that. Like, hey, a group of us got to, uh, of coworkers get together after work, and one of them happens to know how to train people. Um, hey, we're all going to do that. I'm going to lead you guys through this workout, and then it's a t- tremendous bonding experience for the group. Um, there's a, there's built-in motivation, accountability, accountability. Where are you? Yeah. 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 If someone's missing, you're calling them, right. You're texting the group text is lighting up like, Hey, what's going on? Um, and for me that I don't see, I mean, I know some people do CrossFit like in a corner, (laughs) like I know during open gym and like train super hard to, to be competitive. I could never do that. Like I need, I need that group setting. I've got a couple of buddies that I work out with pretty much every day at the 5 30 PM class. And I've, you know, I, that's a huge component for me of like, uh, my day to day motivation and, um, and it makes and not just motivation, but it's really fun. Like it's fun. It's, it's, it's exciting. Um, and I just look forward to it. So, 
Yeah. It's crazy coming back, you know, being at home during the quarantine and then going back to group classes again. Oh, and then just how good it makes you feel is insane. Not the working out, but just seeing all your friends and hanging out before the workout. It's, it's really crazy. It's nuts, man. Yeah. So, uh, in, in Georgia here where I live is, um, we were one of the first States to open back up. And, uh, then I felt bad for, you know, friends and colleagues all over the country who are still, we're still uh, close. I know in New York, it's like, it seems like it's an, it's like indefinite. Um, yeah. You guys are going to, uh, for me, it was, I'll never forget. May 6th was the day that we reopened and I'm not really good with dates. It's weird. Like, so the fact that that date sticks in my head is, is, uh, telling of how significant it was for me. I can't remember the date we closed somewhere around like mid March we closed, but May 6th we went back and the effect on my mental health was immediate and and it was profound like it was huge and i still to this day i still feel like really you know grateful and appreciative that i get to go and work out in in the box and we don't have to talk about that too long amy because i know i know that it's <laughs> it might be a sore sore point for me sore point for you fine. yeah it's fine <laughs> i got my work group it's fine okay. you got your group yeah you, got you got group. The group. we're good yeah yeah <laughs> so um, Nathan, when I listen to your talk, uh, the CME talk, which is really good, I highly encourage everybody to to check it out. I couldn't help but think like, you know, what you're saying about aerobic training is like what I hear physicians saying all the time about like low fat diets, right? It's like they're fixed on aerobic training and low fat diets. And that seems to be like the definition of health that, you know, I was brought up in the medical community learning. And finally, we're starting to change the way that we think about diet. And now, hopefully, you know, and, you know, I think you getting your voice out there is huge to be talking about this to change the way that we think about our training. But I mean, after all, you are a scientist, and we have you here, and I know everybody's going to ask. So can you touch a little bit on how anaerobic training is yeah. superior or can be superior to aerobic training for cardiovascular benefit? Because that's something I heard and I thought, yeah. Oh, well, I believe that but that can be confusing for people. Yeah. Um, so if it there's a there's a few few parts to that. So one is um, and I'll start with what I was alluding to a little while ago and hope it didn't get lost, which is that we've got those three metabolic pathways. And just from a holistic thinking standpoint, we need to touch on them all. Um, that's my, that's a, that's sort of like a working thesis. Uh, and, and it's supported by the, the literature and it's just conceptually makes sense. Um, and to, and for me, I, I, I think I'm a, I guess I'm a believer, uh, based on the data in the CrossFit uh, methodology uh, and the, the CrossFit's definition of fitness which is work capacity across broad time and modal domains. And if you're going to increase your work capacity across broad time and modal domains, then a useful framework to think about that is uh, CrossFit's third model, which is the, the metabolic energy systems. Um, and the way that breaks down in a, in a coaching uh, setting and also like it for, for, for an athlete, the reason we do uh, workouts and a reason uh cross effective crossfit trainers uh program workouts of varying time uh, varying lengths of time varying durations of, of effort is to touch on all those pathways um so we, it's really really important to have your heavy days you know seven single seven deadlifts uh heavy singles working up to a, to a maximum effort um that's going to, to basically determine your your peak absolute peak power output um, if we, and I'm, I'm drawing it with my finger, you know, we can see it, but if you imagine a graph, if you look at the, the classic, uh, work capacity, uh, power output versus time, uh, graph, we're determining the peak power output at the, at the, uh, shortest possible time domains. That's your max effort list. On uh, the other end of the spectrum is something like for CrossFitters, the longest workout most of us will do is every Memorial Day we'll do Murph. Um, 
there's certainly longer efforts possible like marathons and which my wife runs and uh, ultra marathons, which I have a couple of doctoral students who, who are into that. Um, th that's for them. They can have that. Uh, I don't need any of that, but you know, th th it's infinite, right? The time. Um, so that's, those are sort of ultimate expressions of the oxidative pathway. And then in CrossFit, we do a lot of the stuff in, in the five to 10 minute range, which kind of um, has a, it has a strong glycolytic flavor um, for any single modality or, or movement or exercise within the workout. Um, and then we're switching to something else a lot of times. So that's why we program in, 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 in couplets and, and triplets so that you, you're constantly getting a glycolytic um, stimulus and then switching to something else. Um, and the reason, one reason for that, one reason that's effective to execute in a workout is that um, your uh, glycolytic system is the only, it's unique in, the, in how unsustainable it is and how, how it makes you feel. Um, and, and, and to, to be plain about it, it makes you feel miserable momentarily, right? It, it's, it's where we get that, that um, exercise-induced muscle pain and the heavy breathing and, you know, there's usually sweating involved, blah, blah, blah. So um, the, coming back to the original question, what, so what's the, the, um, what's the, the sort of the effect of exercise stimulus? It's something that, that touches on all three of these, um, of these pathways. Um, can, and and I, I tend to do this I get, as I get into explanations of stuff, I forget the original question. So can you remind me again what, um, what I should be talking about? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think you're covering it well. So I'm just asking how anaerobic training can yeah, anaerobic. be superior to aerobic yeah. when it comes to... So then, yeah, okay, I, I remember the second thought I had. The other, the other reason that the, ana, the anaerobic, um, in addition to supporting this sort of broad and inclusive metabolic fitness profile, the other reason the anaerobic... Uh, component of an exercise bout is so important is that that is really how it is that we stimulate adaptation in the oxidative system. And um, that's something that we've learned and uh, we've learned through CrossFit most recently, I think. And then even before that, there's a long history in the exercise science literature supporting interval type protocols, um, which again, these are, these are the unsustainable um, anaerobic efforts uh, that to, to increase things like muscle mitochondrial capacity and maximal oxygen uh, uptake or the VO2 max or the lactate threshold. So basically the, the I think of it in, in resistance training, we have this concept of time under tension um, with, um, with interval type training or, or um, something, anything longer than like a strength uh, type protocol. I, I like to think of it as time under glycolytic tension. So like the longer, time the, the more time you can spend in that glycolytic sort of zone above in the exercise physiology world we call that above your lactate threshold um essentially the greater the oxidative benefit and and the reason for that is that that's what the uh the mitochondria and the working muscle and i know it's, you know the, the the audience of this podcast will appreciate this uh, because hopefully you've been like medical school and stuff um so some cellular physiology is um the mitochondria that are that are responsible for the, they basically carry out the oxidative pathway. When their capacity is exceeded and the muscle calls upon the glycolytic system, the mitochondria perceives that as a stress signal. And what does anything in the body do in response to a stress signal is adapt. And so it's a really, really powerful adaptive stimulus for the oxidative system to, to engage in this type of glycolytic activity. And the cool thing about the CrossFit approach is that 
we basically get every muscle group involved. There's like not a muscle that's not involved in most CrossFit workouts. So you're getting this really powerful um, metabolic, again, metabolic stimulus in a relatively short period of time uh, by basically maximizing power output and drawing upon all your energy systems and so forth. So um, that would be the two things. Is one is we need to think of the, the human machine as, as uh, being driven by these three metabolic energy systems. So if, a, if there's an exercise protocol that's missing one, then that's incomplete. And two is that this, that glycolytic system is unique and that it, the more we use it, the more we stimulate the adaptation in the other pathway because it's a stressor, uh, which, which is the oxidative pathway perceives that as a stressor. And that's, uh, again, a powerful component of the adaptive stimulus. Yeah, that's perfect. And I mean, once I understood that second part that you said, then I really started to grasp what you guys were doing and it made a lot more sense to me. At first I thought, well, how can this be? And then, you know, listening to your talk, reading up a little bit, you know, it does, it makes a lot more sense. And I, I was impressed that you could even get better adaptation at some points, you know, in, yeah. in mitochondrial response from yeah. anaerobic exercise. So, and that's something that a lot of people would be like, mind blown, no way, but yeah. that's yeah. what we're seeing. And, and I will tell you that even in, even in passing conversations with colleagues at my university, I get like, um, I, I think, I mean, let me just be clear. They, we have, have a great relationship with them. They, I, I respect their work. They respect mine. And so they like believe it, but there's all, there's a lot of times there's like, wait, really? There's like, wait, tell me more about that. So for example, um, when, it's just it's just such so ingrained in our in our thinking in our ideology it's dogma it's ba it's dogma that if the dogma is that if you want to get better at oxidative work then you do oxidative work um that is you do like the long slow distance endurance type work and to a point that 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 is true but it turns out that that is only true to the extent that you are hanging out around that that threshold that that um there's a power output that we all have that's um, a, a threshold sort of between being oxidatively driven versus glycolytic driven. And, um, and, and exercise physiology parlance is known as the lactate threshold. Um, so the, it turns out that you can sustain, if you're like right at that lactate threshold or just above it, you can sustain that for a really long time, right? Well, it also turns out that if you go way above that lactate threshold and go more towards your maximal working capacity, so like really taking a, a lactic acid bath, if you will, um, then you, you kind of get the return, you get the return on that investment um, in terms of the, 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 the work accomplished per unit time, the power, you really get that return on the investment and you don't have to spend 45 minutes at your lactic threshold to get the same adaptation. You can actually do something like, well, five minutes of, of a minute on or six minutes or something, whatever it is, a minute on, minute off, like maximum effort, um, or like an, a workout like Fight Gone Bad or something that's like a bunch of one minute efforts, and, and you're just like, you feel like you're getting beat up, right? Um, and get and get a, a similar, if not even better, benefit. So it's it's super interesting, and you're right that a lot of people are that it's it's counterintuitive. It's like you mean I don't need to use that thing to get better at that thing? It's like I know I need to use this other thing to get better at the thing that so you use your another pathway really to get better at the targeted pathway if that if i'm making sense yeah and actually use a word that um comes up a lot is this idea of dogma 
Mm -hmm. Like things are the way they are because that's how everyone's always thought of it. And that's what we must follow. Um, Mm -hmm. And that comes up a lot and certainly in the academic scene because, um, you know, I saw someone, uh, I saw a speak one said that, the published research is about seven years behind what's happening. Oh my God. Yes. Um, I think about 20 in exercise science. Yeah. So, you know, um, things that we're seeing in social media even, or, you know, sort of things that are kind of kind of trendy, if you will. Um, by the time that that stuff is studied and published, it's already, people have been doing it and knowing about it for years. So that's can be very frustrating for those of us who are kind of in the middle of it, seeing that we're kind of doing things maybe in medically in a way that's not the, the best, but the process of changing that and creating the evidence for it is a lengthy one, which in the meantime, you know, what do we do in the meantime? So um, like, what are your thoughts about that? And sort of what, you know, what has been your experience? you know, so we, uh, you're, you sort of study, mm-hmm. you're trying to make the new evidence, right? So yeah. um, what is, how's that process been? And how has it been like? And you know, what are you doing now? For me, that, that is the, sort of the existential like conversation in my head that I play all the time. is like, why am I doing this? Um, and I, I can, I kind of, I compartmentalize it. Uh, so for the, the research that, I, that we're doing, so we're doing, um, let's just call it very CrossFit informed research in my lab right now, where just to, I'll try to keep this really short, but well, one of the things we're, we're doing with all of our exercise protocols is quantifying the exercise stimulus in terms of work and power output. So like um, traditionally in exercise science lab, which what you do is like quantify the stimulus in terms of you put somebody on a cycle ergometer and you express that as like the percent of their individual VO2 max. Like that's just how we study the how so if I want to study the heart rate or breathing rate response to exercise, that's what we would do. I'm not doing that. Um, what we're doing is looking at the individual's maximal work capacity and literally calculating the work accomplished per like, for example, per rep of a kettlebell swing or per rep of a thruster. Um, and then uh, by, by measuring like the load that they're moving over the distance that it's displaced. And, you know, and then you got the time that they're taking to do it and the number of reps accumulated. So you can actually do the physics and calculate the power output. So that's what we're doing. And uh, so to answer your question, it's like um, the reason I'm doing that, is not so much to necessarily uh, for anybody in the community. It, it is to a certain extent for like doctors and stuff, but really what it is is to, uh, I think that information that we're going to get from these studies is going to be valuable and educational for the exercise sciences. And that sounds super like it's self-important. Like I think my work is so important, but um, I do, I do think we're addressing research at a, at a really, our exercise science research is operating at a very, very fundamental level that, that, I mean, and I'm not the only, my lab is not the only one doing this kind of work, but um, taking that approach is so fundamentally different from like the dogma. Again, like for example, the dogma of uh, expressing all of your exercise protocols in, in terms of percent VO2 max. I mean, that's just what everybody does. So, and what we're, we're seeing already is we're getting significant, uh, we're having a significant challenge in publishing some of our initial papers on this um, because it's just so like people get it. Like our reviewers are getting our understanding it, but they just, they don't know what to do with it. They don't like it. It's just too different. Um, and so that's, that's a, and I'm not surprised by that at all. I'm not surprised. I'm not complaining. 
is just what happens when you do something important. And that's, that's what I have to, I, I, that's the, that's sort of the, when, when my student, my students are, so my doctoral students are the ones writing these papers. They're the first author. I'm the last author. Um, and it's, it really, it matters a lot for their careers and their advancement to get these papers published. And they get really, really frustrated when, you know, we go through four or five different journals to, um, before we even get a, a sniff. Um, but that's what I tell them. It's like, guys, this is a sign that we're doing something that matters. Um, and it's for all the reasons, that, well, this is like maybe some of the reasoning behind what you used to, were talking about, Amy, is that it takes forever for new stuff to get published because of the process. There's just the whole system is, is how it's set up. Um, so that's my contribution to the field. And it's just going to take a long, long, long time. Like this is a five to 10 to career long uh, endeavor for me. And I don't really care how long it takes. It's to, I just want to do the studies right and go through the process and see what it is. In the meantime, so that's, that's the academic side. So that's one compartment. I've talked about compartmentalizing. That's one compartment. The other compartment is, okay, but the rest of the world has to do the right, we want the rest of the world to be doing the right stuff now. And that's the reason for my engagement um, with folks like yourselves, with, uh, with CrossFit Inc., with, uh, and with the different, like with the CrossFit health group within the company and um, my consulting work with CrossFit training is all to that end is that um, I just, I mean, I'm, I'm super fortunate and, 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 and um, humble to have the opportunity to, to kind of have a foot in these two sandboxes. Let's just say for simplistic purposes, the, the, the academy side and the industry side um, where uh, I can kind of bring some of these thoughts together and um, contribute to these different groups in different ways uh, that, that, are, that are meaningful. So for example, um, I, I gave a talk at the CrossFit Trainers Summit um, in October of last year, where uh, I shared a little bit about the, the research that we're doing and the approach that we're taking that I just described with like calculating the power output and all, all that nerdy stuff. And essentially the message to that group, this is the, the seminar staff um, for the training department. Uh, the message to that group in so many words was like, Hey guys, what you're doing is is science. Is science. It, it's 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 intellectually and scientifically defensible, and you already know that you've seen it. But now I'm actually doing this in the academic space, and I feel like that that that's just something that you guys should know uh, about your work. Is that it's um, it's carrying now carrying over into this other sphere where it hasn't been before. And I'm not sure what's going to happen over here, but like, I look to you guys as basically like, oh, it's like, I look to you guys as like industry scientists, whereas I, I'm an academic scientist. We're kind of all approaching the same fundamental problem, just from different angles. So healthcare, right? I mean, we're yeah. mm -hmm. approaching it from the medical side and they're approaching it. Yeah. Right. So, and for the physicians, I'd be like, yeah, if, if, so the, especially the CrossFit physicians, the MDL ones, um, maybe that's the specific audience for, for this is that um, you're not going to find papers to support everything that you know is right. Right. And I would put my scientific reputation behind that statement. Um, I, I'm doing these studies right now in the lab. And I, and the one thing I like to talk, uh, say about them is really fun is that I actually already, they're really fun studies. The first time in my career, I'm doing a bunch of studies. I already, I have a hypothesis and I already know that it's correct. And we just need the data to, to like, I know how the studies are going to turn out. Like I know, I know that when we, do a greater amount of work the way we're calculating it, which is just physics, um, the benefit, we're gonna demonstrate that the benefit is proportional. The, the, the exact details, like how much more benefit do you get from doing more work and 
10 minutes or whatever. We don't know that yet, but the, 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 evidence, the anecdotal evidence is there and the pilot studies that we've done are there. We know how it's going to turn out. Um, so I, I, my encouragement for like, if there's a crossfitting physician that's like, man, I wish I had a study to, to, to really support this. Well, it might be 10 years, but use your clinical judgment when you think it's appropriate within the, within the constraints and confines of what is ethical evidence-based medicine. You can use your judgment to, to, to recommend high intensity functional movement. Um, you know, whatever the how constantly varied high, high intensity functional movement, uh, the, the cross of prescription, right. Uh, and do so in good conscience. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't share the, I know you said you wouldn't complain about it, but I'm going to complain about it a little bit. Um, as far as like getting papers published, um, <laughs> currently in the process of now on my third journal, I've, I've written a, a paper that basically talking about like CrossFit and physiatry and how these two things are related and good for each other. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think the last journal we sent it to, I don't think they even read it. They like immediately threw it out. Oh yeah. So I was yeah. like, okay, moving on. But this paper has now been sitting like in my, you know, I've had it for like years and I'm just trying yeah. to push it through somewhere where they will accept it. So I share your frustration and yeah, it's, I'm going to complain about it. <laughs> no, it's super interesting. And that's something that's, I mean, it's, it's worth sharing and, and discussing because there's some of the stuff that happens that people don't even, aren't even aware of um yeah. the, it's frustrating because uh, like the people who have read it who are like not at all crossfit people who like don't have any kind of thoughts about it one way or the other are like wow this really good and interesting mm -hmm. and i'm like okay well i wish we can push it through somewhere yeah um i can't i can't pinpoint the motive for for this but i in the last year or two maybe like two years or so we've had a handful of papers one we have hold on how many do we have published now we have one for sure that's published and one that's kind of like, uh, well, another one that's published, has got, it's got some, uh, so it's a meta-analysis that has like some undertones of like CrossFit. Uh, rec we have some like conclusion statements that basically the whole field has been studying this in, in a manner that's incomplete in the way that uh, we've been saying. Anyway, we have two papers that are published and now I've got two or three more that are under, in various stages of review that, um, I, I, very similar to your uh, story, Amy, is that um, a lot of times, now, to collectively, we probably submitted them to like, I'm pushing, pushing 15 different journals. And it's so interesting to me to, I, I've encountered this to a certain extent. And the pattern I've noticed, is it doesn't really matter what the topic is, but if it's really, really novel and different, then it tends to, you tend to have a hard time getting the first one published. You just do. Um, that's just a theme that I've seen for the last 15 years. Since I've been publishing since 2008 and I've always seen that. Um, so, but more than ever before, I'm getting that editorial rejection thing that you talked about, which is within two days of submitting the paper, we're getting a letter of rejection back from the editor saying, hey, you know what? We're just really not interested in this. Um, and I can't, I can't pinpoint a motive to that necessarily because I don't know. Not, sometimes I know who the editor is. Sometimes I... I or like the associate editor who handles the paper. A lot of times, like I've worked with them in some capacity, but sometimes I don't know who they are and I have no idea what their motive is. Um, it's just, but it's very, very interesting to me that we, how difficult it is. And, and it's to the point where, like, like I said, my, my students, this is their first time through this, playing this game. Um, and it is a game. That's what I've always described. It's publishing and the, and the academy is a game. You gotta learn how to play it and you just do it right. Uh, but this is the first time 
they've done it and they're like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And I kept, and I keep saying like, guys, this is like just part of the process. Well, for me now with this experience the last couple of years, it is like, I'm starting to raise my eyebrows a little bit. It's like, damn, I did not think we would get editorially rejected at, I'm not going to say the name of the journal, but like where these papers that we're submitting are some of the, I, I feel like scientifically and like intellectually rigorous, some of the best I've ever, ever had my name on. And they're getting editorially rejected at journals where like a bad paper five years ago would just sail through. Like no question. But those papers from five years ago, what were they? They were like right in line with the dogma, right in line with the consensus. No, like, and no wonder that they went, they sailed through. So it's just, it's just really, really interesting. Um, the cycle and, that feeds itself. Like you can't get new stuff in because you haven't published stuff before, but you can't get stuff published because you can't get it past it. So it's like this. Yeah. Cycle that just can't break. Cycle, and it's it. The longer it goes, the more difficult it becomes. Like the more, um, it's like sh the stronger that dogma becomes, and the more difficult it is to penetrate it. Uh, so, like, if if CrossFit was a was a new thing in the scientific literature twenty years ago, it might have been easier to, to publish on it. it. It was a new thing in the industry twenty years ago. That's when Greg started, right? Uh, but it wasn't in the it wasn't even close to the academic space for another decade. So anyway, that's that's actually the first time I've ever talked about that. Like I'm not, like I said, I'm not complaining. Like you can complain. I'm gonna complain. But as a as a as a tenured faculty member overseeing doctors, like my job is to be like this the stoic one about it because that's just part of the academic struggle. Um, and it's also easy for me. I've I've got I've got tenure now. Like. The, it's, it's easy for me to be kind of philosophical about it, um, but it is really, really interesting. And it's something that I'm starting to pay attention to. It's like, it's almost like, for me, it's almost like a metric of like, okay, this is actually good. This is good science if we're having a hard time publishing it. <laughs> so that's, that would be my encouragement for you, Amy, is that like, you've been publishing, you've been trying for years to, and the reason is, is that it's so good that people just don't know how to handle it. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just, yeah. I'll, that's what I'll go with. Yeah. <laughs> so all right so nathan i want to switch topic here a little sure. bit because you know you and i kind of both have a side passion for doing nutrition consulting sure. um, and i think you work with a little bit more of an i would say maybe athletic population most of the people that i work with are just kind of um out of our local box here and i know that rp does a lot of work with some high level athletes um, so can you just touch briefly on your, uh, philosophy of nutrition and do you think that, uh, athletes should, you know, and I mean, high level athletes should consume foods differently than the average CrossFitter or gym goer? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I actually, um, I think RP is known. We get, the company gets a lot of publicity for the high level athletes that they work with. Um, but really, man, it runs the spectrum. Um, and my clients, run the spectrum and, and it, it kind of follows the, basically it follows the population of like a CrossFit gym. So my, in my role within the company, uh, there's a couple, there's two of us who have like, we have, I have my L1 and another of my colleagues has his L1. Um, but my, my niche within the company is to work with people who train according to the CrossFit methodology. Um, and that, again, that's, and that's, and that's not exclusive. I also have people who just are, don't, actually don't do any exercise and they only are working with me on their nutrition. Um, I always encourage them to increase their physical activity, but as much as we've talked about exercise this whole time, let me just say this, um, 
by by orders of magnitude, I view nutrition as more important for health. Um, well, that's interesting that, because you know going back to your the lecture you gave, and we we're talking about the you know physical activity guidelines, mm-hmm. and they don't really acknowledge nutrition too much. Um, they mention you know that it might be something that you should consider, right? Yeah. But yeah. in Cross, that we talk about nutrition as being the foundation. So yeah, it's very important. Yeah, it's the it's the foundation, and the, the, what the guidelines say is they just point. They reference the, the, the uh, United States government's guidelines for nutrition and say, go read those. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they don't touch on them at all. Um, so, yeah, but, but like I said, I mean, I think if you fix your diet, get, you, get your nutrition in line. And, and, to, and what I mean by that, too, is nutrition that supports a healthy body composition. Um, then you've, got, you've accomplished like 90% of what you really need as far as health. 80 to 90% is probably the, the number I would put to that. Um, so, but yeah, I, I actually don't work with too many athletes. I have worked with some like high level competitors, including like games and sanctionals and regionals level, um, athletes, but those are like the really, really small sliver. Um, the vast majority are people. And one reason I think that the, the work has gone so well is that basically the average client is somebody like me, um, or like, like you guys, like, let's just say from their twenties up to, well, my oldest clients are probably, I don't think I've had anyone in their sixties, but in their fifties and everything in between. And they're just training like an hour a day. Usually it's CrossFit because that's my niche, but it could be anything. And um, the idea is to just, and they're, they're, they're tend to be very, very hardworking, busy professionals. That tends to be the demographic that I, that I work with. Um, So they, they're, They've got priorities that are spread all over the place. They've got usually got families, uh, got kind of big jobs, or a lot of, a lot of them are in school. Uh, sometimes both of those. Uh, several clients do like shift work; they're working overnight and stuff, and that's that's always a challenge because I got like plug meals in at weird times. Um, so, the, for the most part, it's like a health-oriented um, uh, sort of nutrition protocol that I'm writing up for people. And at RPU, the approach that we take is, um, it, in, in broad strokes, it's high protein and high veggies um, with fats and carbs dialed in to meet them where they're at. And uh, so, and, and we do take a, uh, overall, the, 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 one of the major factors in, in determining someone's body composition is uh, calories. Um, we talk about the whole calories argument if you, if you guys want to. Um, I err on the side of believing that there, there is more to the calories in, calories out thing. I don't necessarily believe that all calories are processed the same way by the body, but that's a, that's a whole conversation. But um, we start with like calories as, as just a way to, to conceptualize like, okay, there's some level of food that you're taking in that um, is going to support your current level of body weight. Um, and then of those calories, what's the composition? That's the macros. So it's high protein, high veggies, and then the, the carbs and fats will kind of fill in to meet the client where they're at. And then depending on the client's goals, most of my clients are on a, uh, a weight loss program. They want to lose body fat and either, well, most of the people come to me and say that I want to lose body fat and gain muscle at the same time, uh, which is really, really difficult to do. Um, so we tend, to, we tend to break it down, compartmentalize, okay, what's your main focus? Is it lose fat or gain muscle? And, um, uh, most times lose fat, so we um, adjust uh, the, the the carbs and fats as we go along from there to accomplish that. 
Um, and so I mentioned calories a second ago. I don't ever have anybody count their calories. I, uh, instead, I use a, a templated approach that breaks down the, the macro um, distribution at each meal. And we kind of time, uh, we bias the carbs around their meals um, and put fats further away from meals. And the science behind that is just to have the fuel available uh, for the workouts. And, um, and then as we go along, um, I tend to cut fats first and then um, later cut carbs uh, from the diet. And uh, so as far as macro uh, distribution, I don't really go by a percentage, but I've actually done the math. It, it's really, really interesting to me is that for the average client, um, like, like myself, for example, the, the percentage is very, very similar to like the zone protocol, which is outlined in the CrossFit level one, which is um, 40, 30, 30, 40% carb, 30% fat, 30% uh, protein. Well, I don't follow that strictly, but when I, do, when I come up with my numbers for the macros, and then do the percentages that it turns out to be that way for most people. Um, last thing to, to address one of your questions about what about for the athletes, for the athletes, for some, if I do get somebody that's really, really high level, um, and not necessarily high level, but just somebody that's training high volume, like these, whether that's a true like games competitor or like a wannabe, um, if they're training two or three times a day, then I will turn the dial up on the carbs uh, in, in that, in that scenario. Um, just because if, unless you're fat adapted, that the carbs are what you're using for, for, for that training. So um, that's my approach in a nutshell um, to, to the work I do uh, with RP. So. I like it. I mean, there's, you know, like you mentioned, insulin theory of obesity, there's calories in calories out. And I think everybody can agree on the food quality as being, you know, one of the major priorities um, totally agree. The 40, 30, 30, I love that as well. I think that's a really solid starting spot um, for many people. And Amy, maybe you can comment on this, but I know we've both been on the games medical team and you're sometimes back in the warm up area. And it's really interesting seeing the athletes with their, um, you know, little uh, wheeled bag full of, full of foods and seeing what they're eating. And I think a lot of them tend to flow definitely towards that higher carb, carb level. So. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, so it's something I was going to ask you about because a lot of the people that we come across in the CrossFit health space are uh, very much on the ketogenic side of things, yeah. um, sort of anti, anti-carb thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, from a personal experience, I found that like macro counting and, um, and involving some carbohydrate in the diet actually worked better for me personally. But um I just wonder what your thoughts are because, you know, the people, especially when it comes to nutrition, people become very kind of married to a certain idea and it's hard to kind of, and there's evidence everywhere to prove that everything is right. So um, what is your thought as far as um, ketogenic diets and amount of carbs and all that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think uh, every, everything I've been talking about so far is assuming a healthy, maybe overweight, but otherwise healthy individual. Um, I would have a completely different recommendation, different protocol for like a clinical population. And uh, for example, I'll give you, I mean, I, I don't know if my mom will listen to this or not. She, I've been on a few podcasts and I don't think my mom's listening to any of them. Uh, but my, my mom and stepdad, re, like I want to say it was April of last year, started a ketogenic diet um, upon being diagnosed with metabolic syndrome. And they reversed their, long story short, is they reversed their metabolic syndrome a few months later. Um, so, for that pop, for their uh, case studies of the, the 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 general idea that I do support is that ketogenic diets certainly have their place. Um, 
I, is it the, I don't, the, I think, so you mentioned that at the, in the CrossFit health space, there's a, sort of a strong bias towards that. I think it comes, my, my, this is my own impression. I think it comes from evidence like that, both personal experience in the clinical arena where you see the powerful clinical impact of the ketogenic diet. Um, I, I, you, had, you guys had, I think Tom Ciceron was your, was your first guest. Yeah. He and I have had, I guess you could call it significant debates on this, on this point. So he's, he's very, um, I think he, I don't think he would mind me saying he's anti-carb almost, almost in all circumstances. Um, and I completely respect that view and I understand why he has, it. I think it's, I, I think that's influenced and flavored by his clinical experience and is also his personal experience when he, it works very, very well for him. I love, I'll actually, I should try it sometime. I, I need to, I need to do the per, end of one experiment on myself um, with some of these different things. Uh, but he called it like the wolf diet where he, <laughs> he, he, uh, or I can't remember if that was the right way, but he, he eats like when he has the opportunity, he eats like a lot of food at once and then goes a long time without eating again. Um, it's like almost like mimicking when the animal kills its prey. Um, and it's mostly meat and fat and, and, and he, and that, that seems to work really well for him. Well, I'm of the opinion, the, the longer I've worked in the nutrition space, I'm of the opinion that there's, there's more than one way to do it. And the optimal way, it, it's a, a cop-out to say the optimal way is unique to each individual because we're all special snowflakes. I, I'll be a little bit more scientific than that. I think there's best practices, if you will, or maybe even more than one best practice that you can, and you can break it down into different groups. So for the clinical group, like somebody with meta, like a diagnosed metabolic syndrome or, or has elevated, for example, uh, hyperinsulinemia. Um, the, the reason they got there is there's no question that it's from a, a caloric excess that's primarily composed of excess carbohydrate. So they're in, they, they, they have excess body fat. That's the evidence of the caloric excess. And, the, and they have hyperinsulinemia based on their labs because of, uh, the excess carbohydrate consumption. Well, the solution to that is to, to reduce the carbs. And if you look at the, the, the intake level for like carbohydrates per day for somebody like that, a lot of times the average American with metabolic syndrome is taking in something like three to 400 grams of carbs per day. Well, it's no wonder. And, and, and Tom, he gives those anecdotes of like the individual that, I think it was your podcast. I might be mixing up podcasts where I've heard him. Um, but uh, he talked about the guy that was taking in something like that, that was something like 500, 600 pounds. And it's like, well, no wonder you have an, a, an aversion, a, such a strong aversion to carbs, because that's what you, that's, that's been your exposure to. Um, with carbohydrate in particular, my opinion is that the toxicity is in the dose. Um, and the, the do that, that toxic dose is defined by the point at which you become obese and become hyperinsulinemic. And ultimately that leads to, to insulin resistance, which is the root cause of chronic disease. There's no question about that. Um, when matched with appropriate levels of metabolic output, then a diet that has a carbohydrate component, like you were talking about, Amy, like, um, and I think I, I, I would say that you and I then might be similar, like some uh, measured, always measured, uh, and uh, sort of optimized dose of carbohydrate, it works well for me. Like I walk around it, I mean, I don't have my, I have sleeves on so you can't tell, but I walk around at somewhere around 10 to 12% body fat. Um, and I have uh, a carbohydrate intake that's roughly equivalent to my, my body weight in grams, about 165 grams of carbs per day. And 
that's that's my end of one anecdote, and I can actually give you hundreds of clients who have about the same, and that turns out it, combined with all the other elements of the diet, tons of veggies and high protein, about similar level of protein, etc. Um, it it works well, and my numbers are, I mean, Tom lists all of his numbers. Mine mine are just as good. You know, my HDL is close to 100. Blah blah blah. So anyway, my my point is that. Um, that sounded argumentative. I don't mean it like that, <laughs> but uh, it's just, it's just the point is that there's there, with nutrition, you're right, Amy, that, that there's so much um, polarization and, and, and it's like either this or that. And I, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't look at it that way. I look at it as like kind of a more inclusive, like, Hey, this, there's many ways to do this. And there it, it's on, it's different from the exercise side. The exercise side is like, hey, look, there's this, there's been this, well, I guess this is kind of true for nutrition in some ways, but um, there's been this way that's been projected from the exercise sciences that say this is the, the right way. Um, on the nutrition side, um, yeah, I definitely think the mainstream guidelines of like high carb, low fat for the sedentary person, that doesn't make any sense. But there's also like sport nutrition research that supports the approaches that I, that I use in, in, in my work. And it, it, it holds up when I try it out in the real world. Um, and then the same can be said for like the, the low carb, uh, high fat approach. I, I, I definitely believe like, for example, the Verta health data is super compelling. 60% uh, reversal rate for type two diabetes in those, in the Verta health studies uh, for people on the ketogenic diet compared to uh, the standard care, which is like one in a thousand. So 60% reversal versus 0.0001%. Um, that's, I mean, I, yeah. So bottom line, I'll stop babbling, <laughs> but it's like, yes, there's, there's room for everyone in the sandbox. I think it just depends on who, who we're talking about, which, which groups of individuals we're talking about. I think that's a great way to put it. Uh, with both of you, you said, Amy, that you can find evidence to back up whatever approach that you pick, I think is really important to understand. And then Nathan, what you're saying, that's a super interesting thing because it's like, you know, your experience is a lot for a lot of people, um, they're unhealthy and then they find a way to become healthy through, you know, whatever dietary approach that they pick. And usually one works really well for them. And then what they want to go do is go find evidence to support that. Absolutely. And that works. And then that can easily become the only way. And yeah. I don't even think that a lot of people think it's like the only way. I think a lot of people who, you know, subscribe to the certain theories would be open to others, but they're like, this is just what works for me. So they automatically assume it must work for you. And I can, you know, take a look at like a guy like you or somebody who, you know, I see in the gym who may be, you know, training really hard, eating a moderate to high carbohydrate diet. And then I would be like, you know, what are you doing? If I eat like that, literally I'm a blob within two yeah. weeks. Uh, but that's just what works for me over time, you know, and I get into this with people about tracking calories all the time. Tracking calories doesn't work for everybody, but for a large amount of people, they're able to exert that amount of discipline yeah. and it works perfectly well. So it's so individual and that's one thing. And I liked how you compared it a little bit to, to exercise. Well, with exercise, we do know some good formulas yeah. that work. With nutrition, you really have to meet people where they're at. Yeah, I'll give you my, I do have some absolutes on nutrition. Those are, and I think there's some things that we can probably all agree on. Um, I absolutely, I don't think I've ever, I've had a, a, a sugar sweetened uh, soft drink in five years or more. Like I, I don't see a place for those. 
in a, in a healthy diet. Like I just don't see it. Um, if somebody, like, I guess I could see that being somebody's quote unquote cheat meal once in a while, if you really love them, but I, even that I'm going to choose something else. Like I just don't see a, a place for that. Um, the, so that, and, and a lot of times I get clients who, <laughs> who come having been, you know, they're, they're used to consuming those and they're not even really aware a lot of times of the, that a, a can of Coke, I think has something like 40, 35, 40 grams of carbs, all from sugar in it. And like, that might be the, the same amount that they're supposed to get in their, in their biggest dose of carbs from their, like from like some like sweet potatoes, like a, a low density, um, high volume carb, healthy carb source. Um, so it's like, wow, well, no wonder you're not losing weight. You've been drinking Cokes on this and you didn't tell me about it. Um, so that, that happens. So I have an apps, kind of an absolute kind of, um, no quote unquote zero tolerance policy for that. Um, that's one I can't, I had another one in my mind, but um, well, food quality, right. Is what you're saying. Basically like if the quality of the food is consistently yeah. good, unprocessed, you know, not refined sugars, then you're probably going to be in the clear. Yeah. The, uh, we do on RP, we do use in, in measured doses, uh, for, from, for most clients. And if, if somebody has a, an aversion to this, I'll, I'll make exceptions. But like, um, for example, in, we, we do like workout shakes and, um, and the workout shake will be whey protein powder. And um, usually I, my personal approach is to never have any more than about 10 to 15. Most would be like for a high level, high volume athlete, 15 grams of some simple sugar in there. But I'm really adamant about measuring that. And the reason for that is that the, that small amount, small dose of sugar in that beverage uh, taken with the workout and just post-workout uh, can facilitate a very mild if you look at, you might even be able to measure it if you're getting blood samples on this, um, but a, a mild insulin response that facilitates the delivery of that protein to the muscle. Um, so these are just like nuanced stuff, but um, just, just to that, but that's it. Like that's the only high sugar diet, high sugar, uh, concentrated sugar that I would include in a diet. And that's like, and, and, and that's like, for me, it's such a small amount that it's almost like if people are going to fight about it, like it's, it's really, really missing the, um, like, like focusing on the kind of the needle in the haystack kind of thing. Uh, it, the, that's not the right saying, but you know what I mean? Um, making a, a, a mountain out of a molehill would be a better one. Um, the, the, like the other 90% of the diet is what you're talking about, which is high quality proteins. So lean meats and uh, a lot of veggies. Like there's the, the plate. If you look at the plate for most of like what a typical RP uh, meal is, is like, and, and I have a couple of pictures. If you go, it's kind of far back on my Instagram now, but I have a couple of pictures like my, my, my meal prep because I did that once or twice. Um, the, I put a post up on that. Is, uh, it's like you can't see the rest of the food because all the veggies are covering it up, right? There's, and that's the feedback I get from a lot of clients. It's like, this is so much food. I've never eaten this much meat or this much veggies in my life. Um, so that's really the, the core. And I, I guess, yeah, we, we would call that food quality. Um, and then again, the, the specific amounts of fat and and, and carbs are uh, titrated to the individual. Um, I kind of have like a, a, an approach that I use to uh, kind of dial that in based on what the individual's lifestyle is, what their, what their training is, how old they are, their, to their body size and so forth. So, so yeah, yeah quality I, think, is I think that original, you know, and I keep coming back to this, the more I learned about nutrition, I'll go back and just look at, you know, we have the the poster in the nutrition office at the gym or whatever. 
of the CrossFit diet prescription, you know, meat and vegetables, nuts and seeds, some fruit, little starch, no sugar. And I, I think this is so simplistic, but oh my it, God, is it so true for every instance? It's crazy. It, yeah, it is. And it's um, the, the added step. Like, so that's like the core and the added step that I take to that is, um, you know, weigh and measure, which is, which the, at the, at the level one, they really advocate for us. Um, weigh and measure your portions. If you haven't done, if you haven't done it before, Weighing and measuring your portions, uh, mostly weighing, is extremely illustrative. Um, oh, I, I remember my other, my other like kind of absolute. Even though I'm like really big on weighing and measuring, I I really do not advocate for counting calories. Um, which is like okay, wait, what the heck? Um, I use the macros and the targets for each category of, of macros as like a proxy for calories because that's what. I mean, you, we get the calories by multiplying right, right. the yep. constants for each one. But I see a lot of, a lot of people get really hung up on like, okay, I burned 500 or 800 calories in this workout. Why am I not losing this amount of weight per week? Um, and that, that also links up to like fitness trackers and like how many calories people think they're burning. That's all. Those devices are complete garbage. Um, at least for that, for that purpose, for that purpose. To, to, to use that as an indicator of how much you should or shouldn't eat, um, which is a whole other kind of conversation. But um, the corollary to that is I'm not in favor of people counting their calories in their food. So like, um, I, so I, on my end, I make an estimate of their caloric needs, but and then I construct a diet that um, has a macronutrient uh, profile, the amount of macros and, and sort of a, a, a a, a distribution of the macros that hit that caloric target. And then if the goal is to reduce weight, then we uh, bump it down from there progressively every few weeks or so uh, throughout a, usually it's a three month diet program. So, but then when I get clients who start emailing me about their, 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 oh, I think I'm eating too many calories or too few calories. It's like, we have to have a conversation like calories are uh, not the thing to focus on because it's just such a, I don't know. It's just a, the, 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 the mental aspect of counting calories is just too, too much. But, but I do think weighing and measuring to look at the, the specific amounts of protein and fat and so forth um, in a given meal throughout a day, that's, that's, that's more useful. Yeah, I mean, I agree. So I don't want to keep you too long here, but I do yeah. want to know, Nate, we're asking everybody. So if you had to give somebody advice who's just starting out with health and fitness, um, you know, what's some simple advice you'd give to, to a newcomer? Yeah, a lot of people start that with like a cut away this, cut away that. The only thing I would say, um, I'm not, uh, I'm more in favor of like, let's look at what's not there and let's think about what we can add. So um, the only thing I would say cut away initially is back to that, the sugar sweetened uh, soft drinks. If you're drinking those or like sweet tea here in the South, like everywhere, um, cut that stuff out. Any liquid calories, basically. Let's get rid of those. If you, if your goal is to get healthier, lose weight or whatever. Um, so that, that, but then from there, let's start adding stuff. So add protein. Most of us are under way under consuming protein. Um, and then add veggies. Like most people, a lot of times, not most, but a lot of people, they can't even remember the last time they had some veggies. Um, so add, so let's get some of those at every meal. And then um, assuming that the, honestly, assuming that the, the, the physical activity piece is missing, I mean, the, the best thing to do for somebody, if they're open to it, is to send them to the local CrossFit gym and they'll take care of them there. Um, Short of that, it is, this is where the, the, the main message of the guidelines, coming back to those, the main message of the guidelines is something is better than nothing. And that's a place to start with a lot of people. Um, 
and I, with, with, my, with my bias, uh, I usually try to, instead of like, I, the go for the walk, walk the dog if you got a dog, or play with the dog, um, we do that stuff, but also do things like, hey, every, if you're gonna watch TV, then you know, maybe start with not sitting while you're watching TV, stand while you watch TV. Okay, now do 10 squats every couple minutes while you're watching TV, like that, that kind of goofy stuff. But really that stuff is, that stuff is cute, and 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 nice and, and sounds good and makes for nice like um discussions like in my classes and stuff but what i really like to do is just send someone to to a trainer who knows how to take care of them and they'll a good crossfit trainer will meet them where they're at i like it i like it well this is a great episode so thanks nathan for coming on guys check oh, him out it's yeah. gained by dr j on instagram you Games gotta follow him yeah gains with a z Make sure you spell it right. That's the only way to spell it. Um, yeah, thank you guys. I, I hope this was valuable. Um, I tend to get super excited and a little long-winded, so hopefully. Um, and we're also we're recording this at the end of a at, at like it's like nine o'clock my time, so <laughs> uh, my my brain is. Uh, I used a lot of brain power earlier in the day, so hopefully <laughs> I, I had enough left for to answer your questions intelligently. Um, no, this was great. I really appreciate the chance to come on. I think you guys are doing great work. And um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun.